Mental health is certainly at the forefront of concerns these days as the COVID-19 pandemic rages on and many of us are sheltering at home for days on end. But even before this major stressor, depression and anxiety were among the most common health conditions experienced across the world, and they are likely to be well into the future. Experiences of depression and anxiety range from mild to very serious. Regardless of symptom level, they can be devastating to live with, and millions of people are affected. These conditions run in families, and recent scientific advancements have expanded our understanding of the genetics of mental health. Depression and anxiety are linked to an increased risk for self-harm and suicide, which has increased more than 30% in the U.S. in just the last decade. These conditions most commonly begin in adolescence, making prevention and early intervention at this age group an important ongoing public health activity to improve mental health. In fact, a growing body of evidence indicates that common mental health conditions like depression and anxiety are rapidly becoming more common in adolescents. These increases in prevalence are worrisome because they are historically anomalous. Before recent trends, there was relative stability in the prevalence of mental health conditions for several decades. In today's podcast, we unpack the epidemiologic time trends in depression and anxiety discuss the evidence for various risk factors that might be implicated in the growing prevalence of these conditions, and discuss innovations in research and treatment to, in order to reduce the burden in the population. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today we are joined by Dr. Carrie Keyes, Associate Professor from the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. And Carrie, would you please introduce our guest? Yes. Um, also joining us today is Dr. Kathleen Mary Kangas. Uh, hi, Kathleen. Good morning, Carrie. How are you? Kathleen is the Senior Investigator and Chief of the Genetic Epidemiology Research Branch and the Intramural Research Program at the National Institute on Mental Health and has been, you know, at the forefront of psychiatric epidemiological research, both uh, the science and the development of the field for uh, quite a few years, many years. Um, and her research has really influenced me in terms of my training and development, and so I couldn't think of anyone better to help us unpack um, risk factors and psych epi studies in general joining us today. So thank you, Kathleen, for joining us. Well, it's thank a you. pleasure to be here. And I think the timing is really important in light of the current situation that we heard about from um, Brian recently. Absolutely. And we will definitely be going into mental health in the time of COVID in our discussion. But first, I wanted to start with, thank, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's start with a more open question. Can, so what is mental health? What does that mean? And what does it mean to be mentally healthy? So that's, that's a tough question to start mm -hmm. off a discussion because <laughs> there, we sure can think about that at many levels. You know, what is mental health? And how do we accomplish that? But it's actually an integral component of health in general. And in fact, I think the most important advance in our understanding and awareness of mental health in the US was when the Surgeon General of the US devoted his entire report to mental health in 1999. And the most widely cited quotation from that report was that there is no health without mental health. So linking mental and physical health together really started to make us think about health and mental health and how mental health is integral to the human existence and to our health in general. So I thought I'd quote the World Health Organization, which talks about what mental health actually is and they have a definition that says that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Mm -hmm. So for mental health, we can take that to the next level, and it's the freedom from mental disorders or disabilities, which sounds somewhat circular, 
mm-hmm. but it's defined as a sense of well-being so that a person can cope with the stresses of life, can work productively, and he or she is able to make a contribution to the community. I see. Got it. Yeah, and, go ahead. You know, I would just add to that, Brian, and I think, and Kathleen, I, I completely agree. And um, I think this will come up later as well when we talk a little bit about stigma and how that's mm-hmm. intricately associated with mental health as well, in that we would never expect anyone to be 100% healthy in terms of their physical health for their entire life, right? Like it's not, we wouldn't expect anyone to go through the, their entire life with never having a cold, you know, never breaking a bone, you know, that that's just kind of impossible. So too, the, the process of mental health ebbs and flows for everyone. And the state of well-being is going to ebb and flow depending on stressful life events, um, you know, what's going on with your loved ones, what's going on with your social network, so that, you know, the state of being mentally healthy is in and of itself very dynamic. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I, I think, you know, adding on to that, um, that difficulty to define the clinical syndrome is that we, it, it's so tied up in just our emotions and the way that we interact with other people, you know. So for example, we hear, we hear about the term uh, depression and anxiety all the time and the, the, as having clinical, clinical meanings, but also in our, we use them in our common parlance, right? So we say that movie was depressing. Or, you know, I just got so much anxiety from giving that presentation, you know. And so it leads to the point where people don't think that these feelings are actual, have clinical relevance. They think that they're just emotions. So, you know, can you shed some light on that? Is there a difference between the clinical meanings of the terms depression and anxiety and how we use them in everyday conversations? Oh, no, absolutely. And I think that's the largest challenge we have. Um, in epidemiology. And I have been part of work groups for 30 years and worked with some of the leaders of the field in Switzerland and Europe and elsewhere who have debated these issues for the 30 years prior to that. So for hundreds of years, the question has been, what is a disorder and how do we distinguish that from a normal state? So it is akin to something like blood pressure. So you have to have blood pressure. But when, at what point does it become hypertension? And as you and I know, um, we've been trained, many of us in cardiovascular epidemiology, the thresholds after which people have high blood pressures change dramatically over time. And anxiety and depression are the same. However, the additional challenge we have in psychiatry is we don't have laboratory tests with which we can make pathognomonic decisions about somebody, whether they have depression or anxiety or not. And Brian, as you mentioned, anxiety and depression are normal human emotions. They're part of the universal experience. And if somebody doesn't have sadness in reaction to a movie or a loss, something happens in your life, even small things or larger events, it's really part of our experience of how we think of the meaning of life and its future and our role in it. And anxiety is the same. Fear is really adaptive. So if somebody's coming at you, threatening your life, not having fear is a sign that there's something really wrong with the biology of your system, that you don't recognize threat. So the difficulty we have in epidemiology of mental disorders, as well as in clinical psychiatry, is that we have over the years defined the thresholds after which we consider something a clinical syndrome mm-hmm. at different levels. So in my work over the years, I spent a lot of time working on these kinds of issues. And one of the best ways to do this is to follow people over time, people from the general population, and see what thresholds predict that somebody's going to go on to have disturbances. Mm. So in general, what distinguishes normal human emotions or the usual human emotions from disorders are based on mainly two criteria. One is the symptom, the feelings you're having so distressing that it impairs your ability to function. Mm -hmm. Or secondly, 
does it impair your daily activities, whether you're distressed or not? So are you unable to go to work because you can't get out of bed, you can't um, do your usual activities, you can't concentrate? So in prospective epidemiologic studies, we can look at how these things fluctuate over time. And let me add one other point before we actually discuss some of these issues. In epidemiology, we have been confronted with the task of going out to the general population of people who are not coming to us clinicians for treatment. So this is when it became a real challenge because we asked them questions about anxiety, depression, and many people haven't even thought about it. Whereas when I'm working in the clinic, we see people who come to us with severe depression, think they can't sleep, much more than feeling sad. They feel empty, they feel hopeless. It's really a cognitive feeling that we can only get by talking to people and looking at the disconnect between their emotional state and that which is triggered by whatever the environmental context in which they're interpreting their symptoms. So these cookbook kinds of criteria that we use really help us to define things in terms of reliability, both the thresholds and the cut points and the inclusion and exclusion criteria. But in actuality, this has been the big gap between who comes to the clinic and who we see in the population because those thresholds are quite arbitrary. Yeah, and maybe I could ask a follow-up question, Kathleen, in terms of, you know, the prototypical, like you're saying, you know, when you're working in the clinic and someone comes in and we say as, uh, as psychiatric epidemiologists or the psychiatrists, the clinicians treating say, yep, that's a case of depression. Like not someone who, you know, has, you know, um, a lower level, like not meeting a diagnostic threshold, even though those diagnostic thresholds yes. are a little bit arbitrary or whatever. But when someone says that's a case of depression, what would you say are, are some of the kind of sentinel symptoms that people should be looking out for when, when they're, you know, considering their own emotions? Right. So, I mean, it's basically depression is um, comprised of two different subgroups of manifestations. One, and I think this is really important in the time of mobile technologies, and I'd like to mention that uh, in a little bit, but it is the cognitive distortion and interpretation of reality. Mm -hmm. So people describe depression across the world as in color, terms of color. The world is black. I'm in a deep hole. I feel hopeless. That cognitive component is much, much more than sadness. I just don't feel that there's any meaning to my life. So that's much more of an existential cognitive feeling. The other set of symptoms are much more objective and that we are much more successful in measuring and treating are the physiologic symptoms. And sleep is one of the card symptoms. So difficulty in sleeping, either increased sleep or decreased sleep. Eating, people either lose their appetite or they eat a lot more. People can't concentrate, so they can't form their thoughts if they have to sit down and work. And by the way, that's happening to all of us while we're trying to work alone in our homes. People really are having difficulty sitting down at the computer and doing their work. Oh, so yeah. it's concentration. It's, and the other really important component is motor activity. And in fact, our work at the NIH has shown that motor activity is probably the core feature of the subgroup of what we call mood disorders that is bipolar disorder. It's really a shift in motor activity where people are either very, very active, and not only is that just moving around, but also their thoughts start to go faster. So everything physiologic speeds up. On the other hand, there's the atypical subtype of depression where it's characterized by, very, by slowed moving, by low energy, by the inability to get going. And that is more typical of young people. So age really has a lot to do with these manifestations. So oversleeping, for example, 
in an adolescent who's just moving into early adolescence and you know, uh, mid-adolescence, they tend to sleep later and sleep longer. So how do we discriminate when that's abnormal? So we also have to look across the age span to see what are the normative patterns of sleep, motor activity, and ability to concentrate in the whole area of attention deficits and along with the cognitive interpretation of how you feel and whether that's accompanied by these physiologic or somatic symptoms. Wow. Does that address yeah. very, um, what we Absolutely, would thank you. And, and I would also just, if it's okay, Brian, you know, sure. then contrasting that with, you know, you hear depression and anxiety often said together, you know, yeah. are, is this person experiencing depression and anxiety? Mm -hmm. So, and, and anxiety, I think too, especially in, in COVID, during the COVID epidemic, you know, so many of us feel more anxious. Mm -hmm. You know, we are at a, at a hypervigilant state. Um, so, you know, what, what distinguishes sort of this kind of natural human response to threats from someone who's walking into the clinic and you're saying that is someone with an anxiety disorder? Very good question. That's the question I had as well. Yeah, and anxiety is more common than depression, as you know. It's, and every COVID survey that has come out, everybody's asking, how anxious are you? And people don't become sad um, in, inherently. We're anxious because of the unexpected, the anticipation and the sense that we can predict the future. And all the signs are the future is not very promising. So for anxiety, it's similar to what everything I said about depression is similar to, to um, the mood disorder or to anxiety disorders because anxiety is hugely heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. And anxiety is divided into broadly two areas. One are phobic conditions. And those, the phobic conditions are fear of a particular stimulus. And again, that's universal, fear of snakes, fear of heights, fear of public speaking, for example. Those are very, very common. In fact, I become concerned about people who don't have some of those. And anxiety, so those phobias, and I'm going to move later to talk about treatment, but they're very differently handled and treated than what Carrie just described and what Brian just described, and that's the um, the vigilance, the worry, the, it's this feeling of um, impending doom. And in psychiatry, the syndrome of generalized anxiety is used for people who don't have a particular focus of their worry, but they just know that they're worried. And I think both of the phobic and the anxiety disorders that culminate like in panic attacks, for example. Panic comes out of the blue. It's absolutely not without focus. You wake up at night and you think you're going to die or have a heart attack. It's a physiologic system. The fear system responds without any provocation. So these different forms of anxiety all have in common that your physiologic and your psychologic intuition is way out of whack with what we expect mm. by that particular stimulus that's driving it. So I would say in the time of COVID right now, mm -hmm. that it's a universal feeling that we have anxiety and worry right. about what we see changing in our lives. So to me, that doesn't mean you're clinically, that's interesting. that you have clinically significant anxiety. And I think it's a normal response and I wouldn't go out and give everybody a benzodiazepine unless you're completely unable to sleep or whatever. Wow. So okay. I think those looking at anxiety as an inherent entity, and then let me add one more point here mm -hmm. I think that will help um, to contextualize our discussion. I see depression as akin to an infection. So having just worked on anxiety all my career, you can look at depressive symptoms and it's just like an infection. It goes up and down. You have high depression symptoms. It's part of life. Same with anxiety. 
So I think a lot of the inconsistency in studies and findings, and as we'll talk about, talking about the epidemic, it's anxiety and depressive symptoms that tend to change. The mm -hmm. clinical syndromes really are quite stable. And there's this base of people who tend to have disorders that, as Brian said, uh, have some both environmental and genetic and biologic underpinnings. Wow. I think we have to distinguish these two phenomena, even though there's overlap, when we talk about some of the other um, issues that we're going to address today. Yeah, it was so interesting that um, I, I think an important insight I just gleaned from what you just said is that um, for it to be clinical, it has to be out of whack with the stimulus that you're receiving. And that was, that was an important insight to me because I did want to ask you, are we all clinically anxious, you know, in the time of COVID-19? And it sounds like you're saying, no, that's a natural human response to this scary situation that we have. And, and our baseline levels of anxiety are all going up. But um, clinical, maybe does that mean, actually, let me make this a question. Does that mean that the threshold for being clinically anxious goes up as well or no? Do you see well, what I mean? If everyone yeah, is I mean, facing maybe, the same stimulus. Yeah. I mean, one, one point I want to make, and, and I'd love to get Kathleen's take on this too, obviously, but because, you know, e even if uh, you, the, the anxiety that you're experiencing is, with, you know, in response to a stimulus, it doesn't make it any less distressing or That's any true. less, you know, and I think a good example of this is, in uh, a controversial example in psychiatric epidemiology, is the amount of sadness that someone experiences after the loss of a loved one. Mm -hmm. You know, when we lose a loved one, we are, we have, naturally, we have symptoms of depression. We are very, you know, we are sad. We are, we have some, some anxiety. And so, you know, it's very distressing to experience mm -hmm. grief and bereavement. Um, and it can be very uncomfortable to experience grief, grief and bereavement, even though it is expected and, mm -hmm. and the symptoms that we're experiencing are within the, within the bounds of, the, of what we would expect from that experience. And, and so then the controversy has become, well, we don't want to pathologize that, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone who's experiencing grief and bereavement, we don't want to say you have a psychiatric disorder. No, you are experiencing grief and bereavement, but that's not to, to we also want to acknowledge how distressing it is to experience that. So right. Kathleen, I don't know if you agree or have, have other thoughts. No, absolutely. I agree. In fact, when I was training interviewers, a lot of the interviewers, and we were doing the first field trials of some of these structured interviews, like they used to call it the SAD, the structure for affective disorders and schizophrenia. The interviewers would go out into community and they say, well, no, I didn't go into the depression section because they had lost a pet or this had happened or that or happened. And the need for humans to attribute their emotional states to what's going on in their lives is, is absolutely remarkable. And over the years, uh, I think we all try to make sense out of how we're feeling. Now, after the death of a loved one, this has been long debated in psychiatry. And my point is, there is no answer to that question. In fact, when I lost my mother, I got an email from a colleague who said, now I'm warning you, you know, you're very close to your mother. You know, this isn't going to go away. This is going to keep coming back. You know, it was a year and every Saturday I still have this profound mm -hmm. feelings of loss and grief. And I think it doesn't, this is, this is part of our experience and whether we call it a disorder or not doesn't matter. Right. But the extent to which a person needs help, and I think that's where I have been very interested in this topic, because if somebody has the loss, and then we have these periods of mourning for people, we have all of these cultural, um, we have these cultural um, steps in religion, you know, where you sit with people for a week or two weeks, or we have funerals, and people visit you and they bring you food and they try to give you support and it doesn't take away the pain, but at least it helps to let you know that there are people who care about you. And I think the important thing after bereavement, what I've seen over and over again is people not sleeping. And if yeah. you don't sleep, 
and you have children. You can't take care of your kids. You can't get back to work. And part of getting back to work is being able to distract yourself from the pain that you're suffering from the loss. So to me, it doesn't matter whether it's a disorder or not. It's if you have a grief reaction and you're very sad, you know, that's, there, there is no evidence to me that the person has to get through the period of grief before somebody considers it maybe giving them some help for whatever the specific problems they're having. So right. if it's sleep, if it's they're not eating, I would immediately go in and say, I'm going to help you to sleep. I'll give you a sleeping pill. I'll give you whatever you need to get yourself back, even though the distress continues. So the, those two are oftentimes out of balance. So getting one that we can help um, in shape will help. Yeah. Wow. There's just so much to tackle here. It's a uh... Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I keep going back to the the comparison you made with um, blood pressure, and yeah. um, and yeah. and then and then the, another statement you said about you know the reason the, when it becomes clinical is when people are not functioning properly, right? You, you keep making that point, um, but I feel like the where the parallel breaks down is that um, this idea of functioning is so value laden, and you know we, maybe we're going to get into the stigma, et cetera. Um, but you know the idea that you can cope with stressors in your life, and that we give people um, respect, and um, you know we 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 value people who can deal with the stressors in their life well, um, is very different well, from even, the out. Yeah, just Sorry, even so. What, what does it mean to to cope well? Like what does that, it mean? That of course, like a societal construction. It's a societal <laughs> construct, exactly. Which is very different than, say, the a heart attack that comes from having low blood pressure, right? So the the event that we're trying to prevent right. in keeping your exactly. your heart your your blood pressure controlled is not as value laden as the outcome that we're trying to prevent. Um, you know, w when we're trying to keep people's depression and anxiety under control. And I think that that's the really hard part here is that people, even people in the throes of depression and anxiety who know they have clinical depression or anxiety still think I should be able to deal with this. Come on, you know, pull yourself up and, and handle the situation, you know, and, and that doesn't happen with, with some of our more physical health problems. So I don't know if you wanted to address that. Uh, and I don't know if you can address it, but I'd sure, love your insight. It brings up a lot of the issues that yeah, there's a lot of issues that this brings up, as you said. I, of course, it brings up stigma, certainly, mm -hmm. because I think the inherent the issue here is it's mainly the person's interpretation mm -hmm. and their view. Now, with some people, like I study migraine, people with migraine will go to work because there's some personality trait that just tends to be associated with migraine, and so. I've had so many people in our studies of migraine and they go to work. They're so sick. They'll go into the lavatory at work and throw up. Then they'll come back and do their work because they're so compulsive about getting their work done that you will say, well, did you go to, you know, in these questionnaires, did you go to work? And the answer is yes. But you have other people who will, any excuse, maybe, you know, it probably has to do with where they work and what they do, but they don't go to work. So, it's, it's um, you know, there's not clear objective markers of what is impairment and what right. isn't. But I think a lot of it goes back to the idea of the person's interpretation. And then a lot of the therapies help people to reframe that interpretation of having to be too productive and successful in their accomplishment of their daily tasks. Mm -hmm. So one of these issues I think that's going to really make this clear is we do something called EMA, Ecological Momentary Assessment, where we ask people day to day about different events in their lives and their ability to respond to those. So does their mood go up and down? And we look at fluctuation of mood, anxiety, attention, irritability, and so forth. It's, it's now being much more this approach widely used because now we're learning more and more. You, it's the daily fluctuations that matter. It's not when they come to the clinic and they recall the last month because recall is so biased. So looking at people in real time really helps us understand the fluctuations, the diurnal patterns. 
So there's a lot of apps out there now that purport to be able to predict onset of depressive mm -hmm. episodes and even depression by measuring the voice or measuring the, the amount of time they're texting and all these kinds of things. And many of us in, who have done EMA for years really are very reluctant and we're skeptical that without asking a person what's going on in their mind and their interpretation, that we're ever going to be able to use any objective tool to say this person is depressed. So if I have somebody who's slowed down all of a sudden, they're not texting, their voice is diminished, I cannot say that person's depressed unless I ask them because it could just as likely be the person suffering from a cold and they're just not able to use their usual activities or their voice the same way. So it comes down to, as you said, impairment is also defined by the individual. It's subjective in many ways. It's, it's objective, very, but there's very, a subjective. very subjective. Right. As is schizophrenia, it it's hearing right. voices, mm -hmm. it's hearing voices, it's seeing visions, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, very clearly thoughts in your head that you want to get rid of. Eating disorders. I feel fat even though I weigh 80 pounds. Mm -hmm. So almost every one of the conditions we look at, it is a disconnect between cognitive interpretation and the symptoms and the behaviors that we see. And I think that's the challenge that's in mental disorders that we don't have in something like hypertension. I mean, I was just going to say though, what, you know, that is, it's sort of like the Holy grail at some point in, in psychiatry is like, what if we could like, wouldn't, it would be amazing if we could have some app that could tell us with, you know, reliability, like, wow, you are experiencing depression. You need to come right. to the clinic. We have these treatments for you. You know, like that would be fantastic, but it's simply yeah. not the reality. And right. I think it would, part of the right. reason it would be fantastic. And one thing I wanted to transition to in terms of talking is that, is that even though these conditions, depression, anxiety are incredibly common, they're, they, the likelihood that people are going to seek treatment still remains uh, low. Um, and part of that is this stigma issue of I should be able to handle this on my own. I don't want to tell anyone about this. People are going to think I'm crazy. Um, people are going to think that I'm lazy, you know, that, that all of these tropes that people associate with mental illness um, get conflated with these symptoms. And so Kathleen, I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the major barriers to people seeking a mental health professional? Um, and, and what are some strategies that researchers are doing to try to improve treatment initiation and retention? Yeah, well, of course, that's the most important question. I think that we in the field of psychiatric epidemiology have brought forward to the world, and that is the huge gap between what we see in the clinic and people who are out there. And it's quite complicated because if we look at depressive symptoms and anxiety, and I were to go to do a survey right now, which is what I'm now involved in, and many of us are involved in, you're going to find, as Brian said, such high levels of anxiety. I'd be surprised at people who don't have anxiety. So I've heard some people in child psychiatry say it used to be that they saw one out of five children will have a clinically significant disorder of some kind. And now it's almost five out of five. Wow. So it gets back to the issue is the anxiety that we're feeling, the changes, the dramatic changes in our lives. And we can go on to that in a few moments. Yeah. But I think stigma has been one of the biggest impediments um, in terms of the belief of the causes of mental illness have to do with moral flaw, weakness. Um, when I came into the field, people believed, and this was, sadly, it was in the field of psychiatry. I was trained that the mother was the cause of autism in their children. 
mothers are the cause, not fathers. It was quite interesting to me that it was the maternal relationship early in development. And this was because we really had no idea about what makes the difference in when something's clinically significant or not. So the idea that it's caused within families and it's moral weakness and flaws, I think has been something that makes us reluctant to admit that we have these things because it's not the same as saying I have diabetes or hypertension. It means I'm, I'm weak. And I think even now, many of us have this within ourselves. It doesn't, it's not just societies, Mm -hmm. but when societies have this globally and they discourage talking about mental disorders and your emotions, then I think that's where it really prevents us from coming to treatment. So I think two things that I have seen, particularly in countries like the UK, where people, you know, the stiff upper lip and people were more reluctant to speak about feelings in certain segments of society. When Prince Harry talked about his depression, when some of the actors and actresses and basketball and football stars and people who respect, they speak about it publicly. And then people see this and they say, oh, you know, this is a star. This is somebody I admire and they have it. I think that's had tremendous power in letting people know that these are part of everyday existence. And I think in the U.S. it comes down to education about what mental disorders are. And I think we've come a long way, um, right, Carrie? In terms of educating about anxiety, depression. But we still don't understand psychosis. Yeah. People still don't understand about these kinds of more extreme symptoms that they don't experience on a regular basis. Well, and I'm thinking too in the U.S., um, Brooke Shields, when, when Brooke Shields disclosed yes. that she had postpartum depression, it was a huge moment for uh, yes. young mothers that, you know, if Brooke Shields can experience this, she's beautiful, she's wealthy, she's, you know, mm-hmm. like all these yes. things, she had postpartum yes. depression. Then you saw a sea change in treat, talking about postpartum depression, women seeking help for postpartum depression, you know, it became much less stigmatized. Um, so I totally agree, you know, you have to have the, this, this face to these conditions um, mm-hmm. that really... Will will change opinion. You know, Kathleen and I can talk about the symptoms and, and forever, but you know, it's really when you identify with someone who um, who has the condition, where you know you really see a lot of change. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we've been trying to do, me, we, and others, there's a big movement in the United States, and I think this is helping us. There's a lot of online communication now. Now we've been forced into it. You know, my colleagues who are physicians and clinicians trying to treat people, they can't come into their offices. So people are going to have to learn how to use Zoom and everything else like I had to do today. You know, it's, it's, um, there is a strong tradition of community treatment in Australia and Europe. And we've been talking to some people from the Netherlands where they do community based online education interventions and one of the things we're trying to do is we go to the local high schools I think this should be part of our education system in America I think when kids have health classes seventh and eighth grade we should teach them not only about general health and physical activity and diet and exercise so forth We should teach them also about emotional health. And I think if we build that into our curricula and talk about this, children are very open. So even if they're parents and their grandparents, it's just like a lot of things like issues like gay marriage and these kinds of things. If young people become educated and they're aware of these things and they realize people who have these things aren't freaks, I think that's the way we can really broaden this, the message to society so people feel less individual suffering because mm-hmm. of having their whatever their conditions may be. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. In the intro, and I, and I want to continue some of these themes, but I want to bring in um, 
the idea of epidemiologic trends because we, we said we would talk about that. And I think um, any discussion of trends is going to have to bring in these ideas of, um, you know, is it the stressors or the response to the stressors or something completely separate that's changing over time, right? Um, but we mentioned in the intro that uh, depression and anxiety are on the rise in our country. Um, is this a true statement, Kathleen? And, and what would you say the evidence is? And then I have a number of follow-up questions about that. Sure. Yeah, well, there's, um, in fact, Carrie was involved in one of the studies. Carrie, I think you might be first author of one of the studies um, uh, when you looked at monitoring the future and saw yeah. increases in trends uh, mm. in a published paper. What journal was that, Carrie? We could refer. It was, to that. yeah, I, we can put the link in the show notes. Sure. Um, but it was Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology this past. Okay, year. so that's important. So I would say that. Um, Carrie's work in some of these surveys where she's done some really um, sophisticated age period cohort models have been very important in showing that these symptoms of anxiety, depression have been increasing. And I would mm. say now, you know, as we're all talking today, every one of us is suffering from anxiety. And mm -hmm. I would say it's, it's even clinically significant in my mm -hmm. case, because I am just, I'm staying up all night reading the web, hoping Right. That something happens to stop this suffering that's going that I see all around. Right. And we're impaired clinically. And yeah. it is distressing, you know. So mm -hmm. all of us, I mean universally, this is unbelievable situation for all of us right now. But when we've looked at studies that are prospective that actually look at clinically significant depression, anxiety, and other conditions, the data suggests that that is more stable over time. So I can refer you to the, some of the work in child psychiatry by a group in Brazil named Palanchik and their colleagues who have done some of the most powerful mega analyses of all the studies, population-based studies and cohort studies of depression, anxiety, and childhood disorders. And their data suggest that clinically significant depression, anxiety, and attention deficit have been stable across the last 30 years. So even though we see a dramatic increase in waxing and waning in anxiety and depression symptoms, um, we have not seen that that matches with the clinically significant subset in the population. Well, that's interesting. And I think that okay. probably has more to do with the multifactorial nature of these conditions. There's a subset of people who are biologically and genetically at risk, and fortunately, many of the rest of us may have greater coping skills mm. so that we don't develop disorders. So even in the front, in the confronted with much higher levels of anxiety, depression um, in our lives, um, we're much better. We're still able to cope with them at a point that has not increased the rates of the clinically significant disorders. I now, see. having okay. said that, I think in America, the only study we have that really addresses that would be in children would be the Smoky Mountain study of Jane Costello and her colleagues, which is prospective. And they have shown no increase in clinically significant disorder over time. But that study stopped about a decade ago. And we need data to address this question properly. And I think it's appalling that the United States where we have the riches and strength and methodology that we don't have studies of mental disorders where we're following people, where we can identify how these trends affect particularly the people at the tip of the, at the severe tip of the, of the spectrum. And we just don't have data. So, you know, Brian in response, yes, it doesn't look like these disorders have continuing, but I would suggest now that I wish we had a number of cohort studies where we look at clinically significant conditions mm -hmm. systematically, because my suspicion would be yes, you know, given the rampant exposure now. Right, with COVID-19 you mean. But, but yes. prior to COVID-19, it sounds like you're saying that uh, depressive and, and anxious, being the feelings of depression and anxiety, the, the symptoms are going up over time. But, that, but the number of people, the prevalence of reaching that clinical threshold have not gone up over time. Is that a correct statement? Right. 
Right, and, and, and increase and, could have to do with recognition, right? It's, it could I was going to ask that. Talking about <laughs> right, yeah. how much of that yeah, is exactly. people just saying, hey, I'm feeling right. more depressed or anxious than they ever have before. Exactly. So you're saying that that could be a possibility. Well, yeah, I mean, just to just to jump in here as well. I mean, I totally agree with Kathleen that we have to separate out, uh, you know, the the specific phenotypes that we're talking about. And mm-hmm. I totally right. agree that, you know, like the these some of these more biological or, or these kind of like subtypes of depression, anxiety or, or clinical manifestations of depression, and anxiety that are more related to genetic and biological underpinnings, you know, they're in and providing support for those phenotypes, those have remained more stable. Whereas things that are more environmentally driven and affected mm-hmm. change with response to environment, again, which is what we would expect. I do want to point out though that, you know, yes, the, you know, the monitoring the future and there's several other uh, data sets that, you know, don't, don't have the richness of data that, that Kathleen is talking about, where we would have large cohorts that we follow across time, right. um, but are these snapshots that we collect on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, so we've seen these symptoms of depression and anxiety go up, but also suicidal behavior and, and yeah. uh, suicide. Um, suicide in the United States has increased more than 30% in the last mm. 10 years and has increased in pediatric populations as well in adolescents. So, you know, we need to those are things that we need to pay attention to in terms of public health. Right. So that would, that would argue to me, at least that the actual clinical experience is, is going up. It's not just, so, so people reaching the point of, um, you know, a clinical threshold that would cause them to harm themselves, for example, or, or, or kill themselves um, is going up over time. Well, suicide is going up, but not all suicide is necessarily linked to clinically significant depression and anxiety. You know, so we kind of, again, like I'm saying, separate out these these different phenotypes because each of them is going to have a different time trend depending on how environmentally provoked they are. Right. Yeah. So uh, another question I wanted to ask before I forget to ask it is, uh, you know, when we're talking about people reaching the clinical threshold being pretty stable is the clinical threshold staying the same over time <laughs> or, or is the actual diagnostic criteria changing? I just want to make sure that we're not, we're not talking about a measurement issue cha- changing over time. That's a good question. And I don't know that Kathleen mm. would, would know that. No, actually it's not because you know, this thing of counting three or more symptoms and four or more of this or five or more of this, that Mm -hmm. even my children used to make fun of when we talk about depression. But you know, when someone comes with depression clinically, they tend to have all of the symptoms, you know, it's Mm -hmm. almost never a threshold question, but we may want to take on the issue of suicide right now because what Carrie raised is, is precisely the biggest concern we have in psychiatry. So I think what happens in the area of suicide, which is another area Carrie and I have both studied, uh, my work more recently because I study bipolar disorder is, that then the, the lay people in the lay press automatically assume when someone attempts suicide or kills themselves, they were depressed or despondent because. And the more we study suicide, the more we understand that it is not straightforward effect of having depression. Mm. Yes, most people who attempt suicide have depression and a history of depression. But what we've learned is the biggest risk factor for depression in terms of mental disorders is bipolar disorder. And they have a 15-fold increase. And it is not necessarily when they're in the depressive phase. And our recent data suggests that it's, and everybody's work in this field suggests it's multifactorial and that it's driven both by societal changes, by availability of means of suicide, but also the people who attempt and commit suicide tend to have multiple disorders. The lethal combination is bipolar disorder substance abuse, majority of them will have anxiety disorders, and also they will have the capacity to attempt suicide. So it's very complicated in terms of all these factors converging at once. Uh, And the second issue that I think we've learned a lot about is that many people who attempt suicide, and this is in 
studies where they interview people who have attempted suicide but not died by suicide. Mm -hmm. People say, I wish someone had stopped me. That is more often the case than people who say, why didn't you help me you know, proceed? This is my intent. Mm -hmm. And it's because they, it's this convergence of the risk kind of increasing. And there's some kind of impulsivity that comes in, something happens, and that they just go out and attempt it without having contemplated it over days and weeks. So it's a very complex response yeah. to and internal I'll states. So as, as Carrie said, it, it's just not so easy to just say, just because depression's going up, that that's the explanation. Because it's gotcha. as much suicide, it's much substance abuse, societal mm -hmm. changes, all these other things. And, and, and I would just add to that too. I mean, it, just in terms of suicide prevention from a public health standpoint, this is why you know, one misconception that the public often has when we're talking about suicide prevention is, well, for people who decide to die by suicide, if it's not one, if, if it's not going to be by one means, it's going to be by another, right? If, mm -hmm. you know, why, why should we restrict gun access to people at high risk for suicide? They'll just use something else. And that mm -hmm. turns out not to be the case. And that's why things like bridge netting, things like, um, you know, uh, firearm safety, um, you know, these have been hugely impactful for suicide prevention because it is, you know, uh, like Kathleen said, you know, even when we, t we interview people who uh, survived a, a, gun a gunshot, a self-inflicted gunshot wound, they'll say, I decided that the median time between deciding to die by suicide and attempting is very short, often less than an hour. And so if you can help someone who's in a suicidal crisis by reducing their access to a fatal means, um, mm -hmm. oftentimes these people won't die by suicide. Wow. Yeah. So it, it sounds Sarah, like you it's may just want to uh, Okay. Oh, please Sorry. go ahead. I was just going to say to end that, that point, Carrie has worked on this topic and it might be interesting to add your papers on this topic. Sure. to the, if you want to, to the webcast. And then our recent work showing that given everything being equal in people with depression, that social anxiety is a extremely potent factor in predicting suicide. And we yeah. believe that that really provides promise because that is something we can really hone in on and prevent people from, um, we, we can help people to cope with their reactivity to the social environment. So as you just said, Carrie, we may be able to build these kinds of risk factors in to our prevention programs. You know, Brian, I know we only have a few minutes and I, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I know we could go we on could talk hours. about this for hours. Yeah. But I yeah. think, you know, one thing I'd like to, to close on and get Kathleen's advice on um, and discuss as a group is for people who are self-isolating, for people who are at home, who are experiencing depression and anxiety at really high levels, kind of mm -hmm. what's our advice? Like what is, what should people, what should people at home be doing right now who are, you know, maybe for the first time experiencing really distressing symptoms or re-experiencing distress distressing symptoms that they've experienced before um, in a time when we're told not to go to a doctor's office, you know, so how do we, what should, what should people be doing? Is that question for me? Yes, definitely not for me, please. Okay. <laughs> please okay, help us. Okay, so I'll just tell you what, we've been very engaged. We now have a in the last two weeks, we've spent nonstop time developing a study um, across the lifespan where we've developed questionnaires called the crisis questionnaire, where we're collecting evidence about the response to the COVID epidemic, the changes both objective and subjective, but we're also building in changes in sleep, activity, media use, et cetera. And Evelyn Bromet, who is my mentor, a famous epidemiologist who has done one of the leaders in the world in disaster research, has guided us in saying, what are the predictors of people not doing well 
in the disasters and the events that she studied, such as Fukushima and 9-11 and Chernobyl. And there's two factors that she said are important. And one is pre-existing vulnerabilities. And the second is people's um, interpretation and their ability to cope. So what we're doing is we've gotten a team of experts from other parts of the world who are helping us to do some online web-based coping training that can be used universally, not just for people who have severe disorders, but hoping to build that in, um, build in these programs that actually cost a fair amount of money. But now since in the US we have the capacity to put this out on the web, NIMH, Intramural, and the Child Mind Institute have combined to build a platform where we can then start to disseminate that at least to parents and children, which is whom we study. And I think the second, we want to build this in conjunction with many other groups who have now, such as Columbia, I understand, Carrie, you're doing some work on this, University of Pittsburgh, Oregon, everywhere, CDC, I understand. Try to build this together to come up with some way to have a platform where people can get informed strategies to kind of help cope and to identify when they really need help. And then the yeah. next step would be for us to muster support from clinicians who are no longer can go into the clinic mm -hmm. to see if they can provide some online help, some tele um, sessions mm -hmm. with people who we identify as unable to cope with the situation. So I think that brings us to the bottom line of epidemiology and that is gather the data, gather the information so that we can identify ways to treat and prevent. And I think over the years, many of us forget about that being the goal of what we do. So I think now this gives us the opportunity to come together to say, this is universal. Um, and one thing I just wanted, I think we should end with, because Brian, I think it's very important. Your area happens to be aging, correct? Correct. Absolutely. And that is the area where people are, as you know, they're mm -hmm. dying alone. The, yes. the, what's happening to the elderly in this country is so devastating. It's Absolutely. unbelievably challenged and painful. Right. And I think as a group, we have to see what can we do to help these people cope yep. with the situation. Yeah, and I, I, you know, have I was thinking about doing an entire podcast episode on that exact topic because I've been talking about it a lot lately, and um, you know, a lot of a lot of our research in aging is going to pivot towards that topic. You know, the social isolation uh, that people are experiencing and the dying alone, and um, man, it, there's just a whole lot to unpack there. So, absolutely, thank you for bringing that topic up. Absolutely, and and the other thing that I would that my I guess my final thing that I would close with. I mean, the work that Kathleen is doing is so incredible and amazing. And you know, I, the other piece of this, I think, that to leave people with is is that the majority, you know, the symptoms that you're experiencing right now, they will resolve. And the majority of people, and Evelyn's work has shown this, and other people who have done mental health and disaster work, is that the majority of us are going to experience very distressing symptoms that will resolve. And so mm -hmm. to have hope, you know, we will, we will get through this, you know, try different strategies. Um, not everything works for everyone, and there might be kind of some cost-effective, low, uh, low effort things that might resolve some symptoms, such as some simple, you know, guided meditation, some some other, you know, things that you can do from home. And if that's not helping, or if you need more stepped-up care, again, reach out. You know, there are increasing numbers of telemedicine providers and other mm -hmm. kinds of mental health providers that people can access and and just to know that we're all in this like we're all experiencing this um and uh and and to talk about it to talk to your loved ones about it absolutely well th thank you for saying that and i think that's probably a good place to end this episode so um i'd like to thank carrie for leading this conversation with me and i'd love to thank um, kathleen for joining us on this very insightful episode uh, before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, 
which this year will be held in December because of the coronavirus, but still in Boston. Um, it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And you can find out more at epiresearch.org. I'd also love to thank Sue Bevins for producing uh, our podcast. And we really appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you.